So here's the scene. The manager of a wealthy man's estate is about to get fired. The owner calls for a complete audit of his manager's affairs to be handed in at his exit interview. And that would be that. Too lazy or weak for manual labor, too proud to beg, this man has to think fast. Since the boss wants one last presentation of the ledgers before he gets canned, the manager decides that now is as good a time as any to cook the books in such a way as to feather his own future nest. So he calls in a number of the boss's wealthier clients and cuts their debt loads in half. When they ask why, the manager winks at them and says, don't ask, but just remember I did you a favor once, all right? In this way, the man gains some goodwill with people who could lend him money, give him a new job, and maybe even house him when he finds himself out on his ear. Surprisingly, when the boss gets wind of these shenanigans, he's not angry. He actually approves, clapping the manager on the shoulder saying, hey, you've done well for yourself, man. And we're left wondering whether the manager ended up retaining his job after all. The owner recognized a fellow Wheeler dealer when he saw one, and he liked what he saw. Anyone this shrewd, this clever, at working the angles was just the sort of character he liked. Now, in the world of work and business, this kind of ethically ambiguous story is not uncommon, is it? What is uncommon is what Jesus says about it. You know, we might expect him to say something like, Verily I tell you, cheats like this will one day find themselves alone in a very hot place. Instead, he finishes this little story of corruption, takes a breath, and says to the disciples, You see, there's something to that approach. Folks like this are a lot shrewder at dealing with this world than you guys are. As you heard Eugene Peterson put it, just a little earlier, streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They're on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in this same way, but for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the essentials, so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just getting by on good behavior. Jesus is having some serious fun with his disciples here. Heard within the context of his entire teaching, he's hardly throwing ethics out the window, but he is playing with their heads in a twisty logic that in the words of Frederick Beekner translate as, it's better to be a resourceful rascal than a saintly schlemiel. They should use all of their shrewdness, skill, and finesse to advance the cause of God's kingdom. There was nothing passive about God's intention for the world and for their lives. Passive piety didn't reflect a realistic appraisal of their circumstance. God was moving among them. God was moving among them. Passive piety alone just didn't cut it. Consider this. Given market gyrations ever since the Great Recession, wending through COVID and now riding the effects of war in Ukraine and inflation, 
Wall Streeters, bankers, financiers of every type and at every level have been jumping and jiving as fast as they can, bringing to bear every shred of shrewdness to maximize their situation. Those of us who have any kind of investments, retirement accounts, own a home or aspire to, are counting on brokers and financial counselors to advance our relative positions. And boy, this matters a whole lot to us. Imagine if this level of intensity was brought to bear on matters of the spirit, matters of the heart, and the tangible matters of the kingdom, like justice and the common good we say we honor in here. That, I think, comes close to the point Jesus makes with his parable. Or consider the energy our current crop of political contenders puts into their campaigns. We could imagine a parable about the slippery politician wending their way through an election, at the end tweaking us with the candidate's cunning. Jesus might conclude that the people of this age are shrewder in dealing with their own generation than are the people of the light, meaning people like us, since we've chosen to sit here in this space. Could we emulate their cunning on behalf of the crisis that the coming of God's kingdom of love and justice always provokes? Jesus certainly provoked a crisis for his disciples, and the record shows that it was at least a political crisis. The manner of his death gives this away. He was arrested by the authorities, hauled off to prison, and executed as an enemy of the state. He was a political prisoner crucified for treason. Now, still following along the path he blazed, reveals that the crisis was very much larger than one generation's struggle. It pervades every time and place, confronting every heart, even to the present day. And this crisis has everything to do with what we might call kingdom values based in the commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself. How committed are we to that as it works out in the world's political and economic structures? Or, or even just in our own daily commitments? As Fred Craddock pointed out, most of us will not this week christen a ship, write a book, end a war, appoint a cabinet, dine with a queen, convert a nation, or be burned at the stake. More likely, the week coming will present no more than a chance to give a cup of water, write a note, visit a nursing home, vote, share a meal, tell a child a story, go to choir practice, or give a bunch of money to worthy causes. Yet every one of these activities requires a set of decisions rooted in the core values of our lives. How did Luke report it? If you're honest in small things, you'll be honest in big things. If you're a crook in small things, you'll be a crook in big things. If you're not honest in small jobs, who will put you in charge of the store? And you see how these pithy bits of wisdom cleverly twist human experience. Luke has them climax with that famous blunt aphorism, no slave can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth, which 
is a variation on the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, this all boils down to asking a rather basic set of questions. How does our faith in God, in Jesus, show up in the actual tangible commitments of our lives? What on earth are we doing? Having claimed God's grace, how and what are we actually doing in the departments of loving God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves? It's all well and good to claim God's grace as our own. The question then becomes, now what? Now what? In 2009, Bernie Madoff was sentenced to prison for 150 years for perpetrating the largest Ponzi scheme in world history and the largest financial fraud in U.S. history, thought to be worth about $65 billion. What do you suppose was the animating focus for his life? He cleverly disguised his essential character, ostensibly a family man who sustained a lengthy marriage and relationships with his sons. He was quite generous, wonderfully affable, big man around town, even had a modest religious practice. When the dust settled, all that remained was a simple fraud and a hell of a lot of broken lives, including the lives of his sons and their families. A fraud remarkable in size, but stupid and banal at its core. Still, we can be very impressed by the amount of energy Bernie brought to bear over four decades, amassing an immense fortune. By comparison, consider the energy necessary to create and sustain healthy communities of compassion and care and fairness and respect, values that reflect citizenship in God's economy. That requires a far greater level of commitment from a whole lot of people. Their small, mundane decisions and actions accumulating into a way of life, reflecting the best of what humans might manage. Imagine if all of us brought to bear the same level of commitment to that as Bernie Madoff did to his hoax. Are we equal to the challenge of the moment? You know, mature Christians finally come to realize that the fate of the world actually does rest within their hands. It always has. Indeed, if not us, then who steps into the fray for the sake of love and justice? That's the nature of the crisis the kingdom of God presents. Jesus says, for God's sake, get to work with the same level of energy and intensity to advance the cause of the kingdom that the world gives to matters of far, far less importance.